Second Peter chapter two is where we're going to be. Don't stand yet, but find your place. Second Peter chapter two. I laid out my clothes yesterday afternoon, and uh, we do that on Saturday afternoon. We try to get ready for Sunday, so we're not rushing around. And so we laid all the kids' clothes, and I laid out my suit, and I picked this suit out. And my daughter said, "Dad, uh, that's a gray suit." I said, "Yeah." And they said, "You look old in that." So. <laughs> I wore it anyway. I don't care. I, what's wrong with old guys, right? And uh, I walked in this morning, and Brother Andrew had on a gray suit, and Brother John had a gray suit. So I feel like I'm in the company of old men today. I don't know. So anyway, I, I think I look great, but they don't. So I, I'm okay with that. All right. Stay with me if you would. Second Peter 2. And um, let's do this. Uh, last Sunday night, we, we finished uh, the first part of chapter, chapter 1 there. And I want to go back to verse 20. So chapter 1, verse 20. And then we'll read through verse 3 of chapter 2. Knowing this, Peter said, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation it slumbereth not. Let's pray today. Lord, thank you for the chance to be in your house together this morning. Lord, the music has uplifted our hearts. Um, Lord, we have met with you already today through the fellowship and, 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 and through song. Through our giving, Lord, we've worshiped you. And so now as we come to this portion of the service uh, to hear your word, Lord, I, I pray that you would instruct, you would teach, guide, convict, help our hearts as we find application um, or from your word for our lives. And so give us that grace and understanding we would ask. And we love you and we ask these things in, in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated this morning. In the book of 1 Peter, which again, Pastor finished preaching the first part of this year, Peter, and it was his first epistle, and he dealt with overwhelming opposition that was outside of the church. And so there was this intense persecution coming at the church, and, and people were folding left and right. They were giving up the name of Christ. They were giving up their Christianity. And Peter wrote that book to say, hey, look, there are some real threats here. Stay strong. There are many who are suffering. There are many who are dying. There are many who are, are having their livelihoods permanently altered in order to be faithful to God, to His Word, to eternity. And he, is saying, he was saying to them, there's no room for disbelief. And he went to great lengths to encourage their hearts to stay strong in the midst of persecution, no matter what form in their life that took. Their faith, he said, would cost them. He said it was a trial, but it would produce in something inside of their hearts and inside of something that was beautiful and also eternal. It would last forever. And he wrote that book to encourage them. The second epistle of Peter from which we are reading this morning wasn't dealing with threats that were outside the church. This time he recognizes there aren't just threats outside the church, there are also threats that are within the church. And in the book of Corinthians, Paul teaches us it's not the water from outside that sinks the ship, it's the water that gets inside that sinks the ship. 
And Peter is so concerned because all of these threats were facing the church from without, and they could endure those things. But he's looking at the church now and saying, look, we got to be even more on guard because there are threats within. And if anything could hurt and destroy us, it's those threats. And we have to be careful and on guard. And so in the first part, chapter one, he challenges the conduct and the character of Christians. He is playing defense against some of the threats that are within the church. But he gets into chapter two and things shift really fast. And he goes from defensive mode into full-out offensive mode. And so he was playing defense, and now he's like, and now I'm going to run the score up on the bad guys, right? And he is coming at them, and things get really intense, and they get really intense really fast. And today's a little bit of an intense passage, and next week, it's like he just kind of makes it, he just kind of takes this jump to intensity, and then next week's sermon, it's even more intense, because he really cares deeply about these threats that people are facing. Perhaps as Peter penned these words that we look at this morning, he remembered the warning that the Lord gave him and the other disciples. The Bible teaches us that they were having this private meeting, this private session. They asked him some questions in private about the end times and the end of the world. So this is their chance, and they have access to the Lord in a way that other people didn't. And so there's this quiet moment, and they're like, Lord, when, when, when is the world going to end? And, 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 and when is all this, like, like climax? And the Lord's response in Matthew 24, he said, Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. He says, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. And he said, They'll deceive many. And then he, if we skip some verses there, in verse 24 he says, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and they shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. And so the Lord is offering this warning to Peter and the other apostles. And perhaps, no doubt, as Peter pens these words, these are in his mind. The very best of us can be deceived. The very best of us need to be on guard. The, the, the very elect could be confused by false prophets and false teachings and people who claim maybe even to be the Lord, it, certainly in the context of their day and age. And so he told them, be on guard. And Peter continues that message decades later as he takes the baton from Jesus Christ and he carries it, his distance. And in chapter one, he says, my life is about to end. And so he's taking that baton that he received from the Lord and he is passing it on to the next generation and saying, be on guard and be very careful. There were false prophets in the days of old. In verse 1 he says, but there were false prophets also among the people. All throughout the Old Testament, false prophets led God's people astray and they brought time after time after time again destruction on the nation of Israel. It wasn't the threats outside facing Israel. It wasn't other nations. It was what took place within and their own religious leaders that they followed who led them astray and led them into destruction. Well, what were some of the notable characteristics of the Old Testament prophets and why were they dangerous? Well, for one, they did not speak with God's permission and they did not speak with God's authority. Okay, so on occasion, I'll be in the house the kids won't know I'm in the house. And one of the kids will say to the other kid, um, hey, Sophia, you need to get me a snack. And dad said that I could have that. 
Okay. I didn't say that. So I come around the corner, and then the face turns white. You know. I'm sorry. Could you clarify what I said? (laughs) And they get a lot of trouble. Do you know what I'm talking about? Same thing, whole different scale. They would say things. Well, God said this. But God didn't say it. In fact, Jeremiah said, I'm against the prophets, saith the Lord, that use their tongues and say, he saith. God said this. Or God says this, people, this morning. And the Son of God and Jesus says this. But he didn't say it. And so Jeremiah goes on to say, behold, I'm against them that prophesy false dreams. I had a dream. God told me this, saith the Lord. And God goes on to say, and cause my people to err by their lies. And he says, I sent them not nor commanded them. They act like they're speaking from God and on His behalf. And they use convincing words. And He says they didn't. So they didn't. Second thing, their message was usually upbeat in contrast to the true prophet's warnings of divine judgment. Okay. How many of you, and don't raise your hands this morning, because there might be a few of you out there today. How many of us just love it when a guy's negative and condemning and like, man, you're, you're, you're going to hell. Da, 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 da. Oh, we don't, those messages don't uplift us and encourage our hearts. We like the upbeat stuff. And, 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 and these prophets knew human psychology. But Ezekiel says this, to wit the prophets of Israel, which prophesy concerning Jerusalem, which say visions of peace for her. And there is no peace, saith the Lord. They could say that, but it's not what I said. They can say peace, but I didn't say peace. I said, I said, judgment's coming. We don't like that message, so let's not preach that one. And so Jeremiah the prophet condemned the false prophets because they said, quote, peace, peace. When there is no peace, we got to clean up our act. We got to pay attention. We're dealing with a holy God, a divine God. Is he loving? Yeah. Are there upbeat messages about Christ and God's word? Of course there are. When we do right and follow him. But if we neglect him and get away from him, there's judgment. They were often immoral in their personal lives. Isaiah 28 said that they also have erred through wine, through strong drink, are out of the way. The priest, the leadership, the priest, the prophet have erred through strong drink. They're swallowed up of wine. They're out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. They they are allowing other influences to influence their decision-making processes and and their message. They would tolerate and even encourage sin instead of standing for that which was good and right and true. And they were motivated by personal gain. They knew what message was popular, and they knew what message generated dollars. And so they punched that gas pedal hard. Micah said, the heads thereof judge for reward, and the priests thereof, well, they teach for hire. And the prophets thereof, well, they divine for money. You want to know what God says? I'll tell you. Just put some money in my hand. And he says, yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. No fear of God. They were doing it for money. And so because of these things and many more, the false prophets led God's people away from him and not toward him. And they were denounced and worthy of condemnation. And the, and the, and the nation followed them and they suffered as a result. And so Peter says, look, I'm going to come out of the gates here. I'm shifting gears here. We need to understand there were prophets in the old days. And then he says this, and there are false teachers among the people. 
In the Greek, Peter uses what is called a chiastic structure. And it is a transition from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Okay, so a chiasmus is a two-part sentence or phrase where the second part is a reversal of the first. So I might say something like this. When the going, going first part gets tough, okay, so that's going this direction with our sentence structure, and then we're going to go backwards. So the second part is a reversal of the first. The tough get what? Going. Okay, going gets tough, chiastic structure. The tough get going. Okay, that's what he is doing in this transition from chapter 1 through chapter 2. So he talks about, in chapter 1, verse 16 through 18, he talks about the apostles. Okay, the true teachers. The, the men who heard the message from God and were just repeating it to the next generation. And he transitions to, in verse 19 through 21, where we read those verses a moment ago, the Old Testament prophets. Okay, so here's, here's, the, here's the true teachers of God, and, and these are the, this is the current generation that's preaching the Word of God. And he says, and then there were Old Testament prophets. And then he reverses it in chapter, in chapter 2, verse 1. And then he says, remember what these were? The true teachers, the current teachers, Old Testament prophets. And then he says, and there were false prophets. And now the reversal. And there are going to be and are currently false prophets and false teachers among you. And this is where he pivots. And boy, I mean, the, thing, the, the letter here escalates really, really fast because he goes on this attack mode. And he views these men, who were the equivalent of the Old Testament prophets, just as damaging and just as damning and leading people astray just as much as the Old Testament prophets were. In fact, their motives were almost identical. So what were these false prophets te teaching that Peter's going to write about all through chapter 2 and into chapter 3, what were they teaching that he was so excited about? Okay, they believed and began to teach that Christ wasn't really going to return. And that was the message. Okay, the Lord's not really going to return. The apostles had taught he was going to return. That he, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to bring judgment on the world for its sin. And he is going to bring great deliverance to all those who trust in him. And for these people, this was a dark world. This was, this was so much darker than even our world is today. And there was hope and there was light in that message. And people latched onto it. But they also had this expectation, the Lord's going to return soon. Okay. The way the Lord defines soon, a day to the Lord, is not the same way that we define soon. And they couldn't and wouldn't grasp that concept. And so people began to get a little disillusioned because the years dragged on and he didn't return. And the question began to surface, how bad does the world have to get before Jesus Christ finally comes back? And he didn't come back. The days turned to weeks. The persecution was from without, the weeks turned to months, the months turned to years, the years turned to decades, and so on and so forth. And so that enthusiasm that they had started with in the Christian life, that deep passion for God, that message of hope and light, all of a sudden began to fade in their hearts. And now they're disillusioned. And for some bitterness and disappointment began to set in. And instead of just keeping that to themselves, they began to publicly share it. 
Look, it is obviously a bad idea to teach that Jesus is not going to return. That is contrary to this book. But the implications of that concept are even worse. Why? Because if He isn't going to return, then future judgment isn't really coming. And that's the implication. And if there's no future judgment coming, then the motivation for doing good and right is suddenly completely lessened. This is what they were after all along. Their teaching arose from a desire to act in a way that allowed more freedom in their behavior than God would otherwise allow. Because when we know daddy's coming home, there is an expectation, I better meet that expectation or there's going to be some discipline and judgment. But if daddy's never coming home, I can live how I want to. And that's the concept. And that's the idea. They wanted to justify their immorality. In verse 10, it's, Peter says that they had corrupt desires of the flesh. Chapter 3, Peter said they wanted to fo follow, quote, their own evil desires. And they needed a way to justify it. And so what easier way than just to change the truth of the day of the Lord and Jesus Christ's return? See, false teachers hate the conservative form of Christianity, and they prefer progressive forms of Christianity that modify fundamental truths with modern relevance. It's always been that way, and Peter says it's always going to be that way. And we need to be on guard and understanding of that. And so these men gained a following by removing restraint on people's behavior, and they offered benefits that appealed to baser urges like pleasure and like greed, and like selfishness. Okay, a true preacher of the Word of God will always preach the whole counsel of God from beginning to end. And I don't know if you know this or not, and maybe you're new in your Christian faith, but there are a lot of passages of Scripture that would be a whole lot easier to not preach. And it'd be a whole lot easier to reinvent what it means and says, or maybe just remove it entirely and make life a whole lot easier for all of us. There are parts of the Bible that are uncomfortable, that are unappreciated, and that are unpopular. And so what did these guys do? Well, they bypassed all those parts, and they rethought and restructured the ideas that were harsh and condemning so that they could live the life they wanted to without guilt and without impunity. It wasn't, though, just that they were teaching false doctrine. It was also how they were teaching false doctrine that was so dangerous. Look, you and I can get some ideas. There's, there could be some weird stuff in our, in, our, in our belief structure at times. But how we mention that or how we clarify that or how we approach that with each other and, and with me and with, with the leadership of this church, that matters. So I want you to note this. The false teachers weren't coming from without the church. They were coming from within the church. And they weren't yelling, and they weren't kicking, and they weren't causing a scene, and they weren't screaming. Neither were they having a meeting with the pastor and voicing their concerns. They didn't do anything overtly. If they had, Christians wouldn't have followed them. Someone tries to do that here. There are some good men in this place who are going to handle it. They're going to take care of it. And, and my guess would be there were some good men there that would have done the same. So that wasn't the approach. Instead, they did it covertly. They were subtle. They were sly. Verse 2 says they used pernicious ways. 
It's an adjective. It means having a harmful effect, especially in a gradual or subtle way. It's this subtle shift in thinking, this slow movement towards another idea. Not abrupt, not, not, not transparent, not full disclosure. It was a subtle shift in thinking. Verse 3 says, to get people to do that in their pernicious ways, they used feigned words. Words that could be twisted to mean anything they want them to mean. So the idea, when you study the word, it's the idea of like taking wax or clay and shaping that wax or that clay into any structure you want to make with it. And an artist could do that. And they were doing the same thing with their words. And so they're transitioning people from this idea that Peter and the apostles were preaching and this standard of conduct, and they're shifting and shaping and through conversation in subtle ways, shifting and shaping the, 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 the mold of what Christ represented to these people over here. They did not set themselves up as opponents of Christianity. They allowed themselves to be seen as thinkers, as intellectuals, with superior knowledge and the ability to understand. Well, let's discuss this idea and talk about it in a very sophisticated, educated, and intellectual way. And they took those words and they began to form the ideas they wanted. They set themselves up as the best Christian thinkers. They were the ones with the higher revelation, and they presented themselves as superior. Now, you and I know this. Lies are easily resisted when they're presented as lies. So if someone lies to you and you know they're lying, it's easy to resist it. But when you take a truth and you come alongside someone and you identify all the ways that you're similar... And then alongside those ideas, you lay a false idea. Well, now it's a lot harder to discern between what's true and what's false. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul wrote, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, his pernicious ways, through feigned words, so your minds should be corrupted. And then he says this, from the simplicity that is in Christ. Jesus Christ doesn't give us a belief structure and a word for intellectuals that only the superior minds can understand. He gave it to us in a simple form and fashion for all of us to understand his message. And so they allowed themselves to be seen as these thinkers, these intellectuals. And, and in, in 2 Corinthians verse 11, Paul went on, For such are false prophets, deceitful workers. He said these false prophets and these people who are working these deceits, he said they transformed themselves into apostles of Christ. We're one of you. He says, and no marvel. Don't be surprised at that. Why? He says, because Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. They look the same. They sound the same. Therefore, they must be the same. Satan has, and he always will, deceive. It is how the world fell. You and I are the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And he leads minds astray. And he clouds the simplicity of Christ. And he does so by disguising himself as good and glorious. It's 
kind of creepy. And false teachers often appear doctrinally sound, personally attractive. They sound really sincere and are logically compelling. But they lure people away in their thinking from God's truth to their own private interpretation of Scripture. And we're going somewhere with this, so hang with me. And so Peter said in verse 20, knowing first that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. So rather, these people come across as religiously free, and their teaching looks good, and it sounds good, but it's not true, and they lead many astray. And their message became and becomes very popular with the people because the false teachers realize that their teaching didn't just allow them the freedom that they wanted, they also were able to monetize through popularity and dollar figures their teaching. People like to have their cake and eat it too. It's like watching the kid eating his ice cream cone who starts to cry because it's going away. We, we want both. I want to have it. I also want to eat it. People like to go to churches that make them feel really comfortable with their lifestyle and don't challenge them to change. That's human nature. The message was this. You can be right with God and do whatever you want, and that message sells. And so in verse 3, he says, And through covetousness, they make merchandise of you. You know what merchandise is, right? It's stuff you buy. And they didn't see the people as people to be loved and confronted and guided. They saw them the way a salesman sees them. I'm not, I'm not picking on salesmen. If you're a salesman, you're smart, forgive me. But that's just what he's saying. Like they're, they're looking at you like, hey, you represent dollars. You've got money in your pocket, and, and, and I want to take some of your dollars and transfer them to me. Okay. They weren't looking at these people. That is okay in a business context, but that's, this isn't a business context. This is the church of the living God that Jesus Christ died for. And they're looking at these people as the, they, their goal and their motivation was, hey, we want to do what we want to do. We can justify it, and we'll sell this to you. And they're making merchandise of the people. They're looking at them strictly from the benefit that they could provide, not how they could provide benefit to them. They became religious salesmen seeking to personally benefit from the people for whom Christ died. And that Peter himself had sacrificed so much more. And Peter himself says, I'm about to die a martyr's death. And history says that he would be crucified upside down and go through a lot of pain and torment for Christ. And he's saying, I have given my life to these people and you're just making merchandise of them. Would that make you mad? You could feel the tension here. He, he, he's not mad. He's raging. <laughs> He's upset. They're leading people astray just like the Old Testament prophets did. And the results are the same. So where's the fear of God? Well, there was none. They were teaching and they were starting to believe themselves that the Lord doesn't, isn't going to come back. And if judgment day doesn't exist, well, then we can do what we want to do. Okay, time out. Peter says this. Look at, look at the end of verse 3. He says, Whose judgment now of a long time, and then he says this, it lingers not, and their damnation slumbers not. He's saying this. God's moving on his time frame, but he ain't asleep. He's coming. He's coming back, and he is going to bring judgment on people who walk astray. And he's saying, pay attention. 
It might look like he's taking a long time to get here to us, but delayed judgment is not the equivalent of no judgment. He is going to return. His judgment has been simmering. He is not idle. He might just in our time frame be delayed, but not to him. So what's the point of all this? Okay, it's really simple. I'm going to try to make a couple points of application for us today. False teachers were, and they are, continuing to be a real threat to the church. Okay, that's it. That's the message. So what do we do with that? Well, let me give you just a few ideas. And I know what time it is. Okay. Number one, you individually need to know the Bible so that you can discern between what is right and what is wrong. We have to have a standard of truth. And it is not a man. And as awesome as I look in this gray suit this morning, it is not me. It is God's Word. And you need to know it so that you can take it. And what God's Word says is divinely, rightly divine, the Word of truth. So you can take what God says and what another man says, regardless of what he looks like, and, or woman, and compare the two. He says this in verse 21 again. We read the words a moment ago. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. These ideas aren't ours. They're no man's ideas. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And, and, and the Holy Ghost is done writing the Word, by the way. There are no additions. And I'm going to read a verse in, the mo- in a moment to prove it to you. Because he, he closes with that conclusion in the whole book of the Bible. Like Revelation, last chapter, he says, I'm done writing. So there is not another man who can stand up and say, I had a vision from God. I had this dream. This is what God said. I'm sorry. No. If it doesn't say it in the book, it's not true. And we need to be on guard for that kind of thinking. You have more access to the Bible than any person in the history of the world. These people to whom Peter was writing didn't even have the conclusion and the Bible in the way you have it today. Okay, we have more access to the Bible, and I'm going to tell you this today, and you pay attention. We have more accountability and responsibility to God because we have the whole Bible. And we don't just have paper copies. We have them in our pockets. We we can listen to them. We can read them. We we can study them in a way no one in the history of the world can. Do you not think that brings an additional level of accountability to you and I? I have a hard time thinking it does not. Make it a part of your life. Joshua, in in chapter 1, verse 6, says, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then, you want to be prosperous? That way you'll be prosperous, and you shall have good success. The psalmist prayed in Psalms 119, verse 18, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold good and wondrous things out of thy law. I'm not getting much out of it, Brother Daniel. Ask God to give you something from it. That's what the psalmist did. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone. You're going to go home today. You're going to eat your food. That's not your only food. He says, But by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You don't just live with your, meat, your, your physical food. You need spiritual food, and you need it. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word, it was God. 2 Timothy 2, 15, study the show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. What's the problem with that? Reading the Bible is work. It, it takes discipline. 
It takes effort. There are mo- full transparency, moments in my life where I really enjoy reading the Bible, and it's fun. And there are moments in my life I don't want to, and I'm tired, and my mind's wandering. But do it anyway. It's work. You go to work. You get that. It requires willpower. Be a workman. Know the Bible. You know what it says. Rightly divine it. You need to know the Bible so that you can discern between what is right and wrong. Because there are teachers today that are going to suggest and say things that are wrong. Number two, never use God's Word for personal gain. Even today in our world, there are those who would take this book and they would use it for monetary gain. And Peter's words echo through thousands of years, be wary of them. It is okay to be generous with your money, but before you start giving it away to a ministry or religious leader, you need to ask yourself if they are treating you like merchandise. Okay, let me press this point. Because more often than not, those who use the Bible for monetary gain, we don't run into. But a lot of us use this book for other reasons. And I said us. So we use the Bible to gain leverage in relationships. We take verses with our own private interpretation. We lift them out of context and we use them to berate other people or to justify our actions. And it's a threat. Never use the Bible to gain leverage politically. This is not a political book. It's not supposed to be used that way. Never use the Bible to gain influence. Never use the Bible to make or to prove a personal point or agenda. Personal gain, I'll say it again, is not the purpose of God's Word. We need to be careful here. Because when you use the Bible for your personal advantage, you, like the false teachers in chapter 2, are denying the Lord that bought you. You're taking something holy and you're profaning it. That's not our job. We live for this book, not this book living for us. To use Bible verses for our purposes is a blasphemy. We use them for the Lord. Number three, I'm almost done. Our thinking needs to align with God's, not God's thinking with ours. Don't believe or teach something just because it neatly aligns with what you think. Okay, I'm going to step on some toes, admittedly, my own included. Okay, so just be ready. Okay, those who are guilty of this aren't just the liberals and progressives, they're also the conservatives. We all can be guilty of this, taking the Bible and applying it in ways that are misleading. We can do this out of hearts of concern because we care deeply about specific issues. But it is not our job to add to the book our opinions because it's not open for private interpretation. And it's not our responsibility to take from the book or to twist anything it says. We don't get to apply the Bible the way we want to. We apply the Bible the way that God intends us to. Just because we're convinced something is right in our hearts doesn't mean God is. There's a big difference between us thinking something and then what God says and what He does. Don't apply or think something is true if it can't be validated, not just from some part of a verse, but from God's Word as a whole, the whole counsel of God. We don't get to apply the Bible the way we want to. Conservative Christians 
can be guilty of creating morals, which are issues of right and wrong, that are not Bible. There are two ditches here. So some people just take the Word of God and fully pervert it and, and ignore it and change the message. And then there's others that really want a specific issue addressed, and so they take it and they twist it too. Neither one is okay. Those are both ditches. It doesn't mean the standards aren't helpful or good, but it does mean we can moralize things God doesn't intend us to make issues of right and wrong. It's okay to have standards, and you should, but you should qualify it by saying, it's my standard. Okay. Um, I am up here in a suit, a gray suit, right? We've already talked about that, and tie. Okay. That is not a moral issue for me to wear a tie and suit up here. It's not moral. It's a standard. It's, it's one that I choose to fully support. I wouldn't work on staff at this church and preach from this pulpit in a suit and tie if I didn't want to. I want to. Well, pastor, you work for pastor, really signed your paychecks. Let's see what he does when pastor's gone, right? Stop. I do this because I want to. I like it. Not the suit. I like dressing the way I think may be honoring to God. And that's between me and him. It's a standard our church sets. But for me to preach that if a preacher's not in a suit and tie, he doesn't know what he's talking about, he's a false teacher, is wrong. It's not right. And we have to be careful with what we say. The minute you interject God into any conversation, you can start to get yourself into real trouble. Sometimes it is easier to be a conservative than it is to be a Christian. And we need to know the difference between the two and not make conservative issues moral issues. We may have reasons for it, and that's good, and we need to be able to defend those things, but let's not say God said when He didn't say. We need to be true to this book. Not everything that's conservative is godly. God's Word and His church are not to be used for a personal agenda or a political tool. We exist for God. God doesn't exist for us. And so when we look at a passage like this, it's easy for us to say, well, yeah, there are threats out there. And that wasn't Peter's point. Peter's point was there's threats in here. And it may be you. And it may be me. And we need to know God's Word. We need to be committed to God's Word. And we not, need not let the words of anyone else mislead us. And then we need to be careful that we don't mislead other people in conversations in ways God didn't intend. Don't add to the book. Don't take from the book. Revelations 22, verse 18. I mean, this is the end of the Bible. I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. Judgment day's coming. So let's be careful. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part in the book out of the book of life into the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. We need to be careful with how we talk about God's word and our standards and what is right and what is wrong. Since the early days, Christians believed that they were living in the last days. They thought God's coming back tomorrow, and he didn't. And if we're not careful... That type of thinking will create in our hearts and minds the same kind of apathy that came into the hearts and minds of this church. And so, 
and my effort to be a true teacher to the Word of God this morning, I'm going to stand up, point my bony finger at you, and say, God's returning. He's delayed, but judgment's coming. It's, and, and, and He judges us in, in ways in our lives too. Let's be careful that we adhere, that we know this book, and that we adhere to it, and keep in front of us the fact that the Lord is returning. And when that sinks into our hearts, it alters our behavior. And there might be actions and things that we want to do, just like these people. But they denied the return of the Lord. And if you will accept the return of the Lord, then there are, there's a different path for your life. There's a different standard of living. There's a different level of commitment that your feet will be on. And we need to walk this way because that path leads to ruin and destruction. And we need to follow what this book says and our God because Jesus is returning.